majestic voice comes booming out of 27 million voice coils. And I am here by George. It's magic, you know. There's a, there's a certain... Uh, no wonder uh, no wonder the magic is coming back. I suspect that it's because almost everything that we're involved in today has a quality of magic about it. I'll bet not more than one out of 500 of you out there can tell how in the world how the devil Shepherd's voice comes out of that mysterious little $4.97 piece of junk that you're using out there. <laughs> yes. How does it happen? What are the mysterious forces at work? So let us call down upon the eternal gods. And we beg mercy. We beg for business. Yes, Maud, the great eternal, all-seeing eye in the fantastic firmament. Yes. Sing it out for all of us, man. Now, bet not one of you knows what this is. I just can't help but fall in with him. Thank you, Herb. Thank you. Thank you. Hold it. Now, reset that. We'll be needing that. Because these are times that try man's uh, something. I don't know quite what it is, but they are. They're certainly times that try you. <laughs> and uh, listen, uh, that piece of music you heard, it was not really music. It was a heart cry. It was crying from the soul. It was. And it was a, it was a recording that uh, a person I know about, an anthropologist made, in the central lowlands, as opposed to the central highlands, the central lowlands of Guyana. Yes, a bad bunch of people running around there. They'd just soon take your head off and look at you. But uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, by the way, that brings up a point that I have to clarify. Uh, you've all heard about scalpings, you know, the Indians and all that stuff. Do you know that? No, wait a minute. Do you know that, that uh, rarely did anyone uh, perish as the result of being scalped in spite of what uh, most movies uh, lead you to believe, you know? And it was considered a mark of uh, honor among many certain many tribes to uh, to have been scalped. That meant you were right there in the front lines. That's right. And uh, and even the, the, the certain Indian tribes that wore their hair in a specific way. You know, you saw that what looked like a pigtail in the back. That was to facilitate scalping. Yeah, they anticipated. <laughs> That's true. Did you know that? Oh, you come around this corner, you're going to learn a lot of stuff that Jane Fonda doesn't even know about Indians. But uh, nevertheless, that is a true, a true grit story. And uh, the Indians, uh, you know, they, they, the whole business of scalping uh, was uh, there's a lot of mysticism and stuff about it. But uh, but to be scalped was considered, uh, you know, a badge of honor, it's like getting your Purple Heart or something. You know, you were right there in the front lines, and by George, you fought it out hand to hand. And uh, Another thing about Indian fighting, curious about Indian fighting, that uh, there was a lot of ritual about it. Uh, and uh, they had sticks made. Uh, certain tribes had sticks. And the, uh, the object was not really, in some wars, was not necessarily to kill other Indians, but to touch them. If you could touch an Indian, uh, you know, if you were one tribe and you were fighting another tribe, saying you could touch him with this stick, that meant that uh, you'd scored a point. I mean, uh, it was a, yeah, that's true. I'm just telling you the truth. I'm not inventing this. And uh, they had special ceremonial uh, touch sticks, war sticks. By the way, speaking of war, O.J., 
Uh, I have a uh, objet de combat. How do you like that? <laughs> objet de guerre. Objet de guerre. Uh, but I have a uh, a fantastic war club that I was. Yes, I got it. I got it from the Shapur Indians of uh, the way high upper Amazon region. And uh, this, I got it. I simply got it. I traded them for it, and I got this fantastic war club. It's made of a of a wood called bloodwood. Bloodwood. Well, the reason it's called bloodwood, it's a dark red wood, really. It's very dark. It's almost, uh, it's darker than uh, mahogany. It's dark. And it's a very rare wood that grows in the Amazon jungles, and it's extremely heavy. In fact, it's so, the wood is so compact, so uh, dense, that you can't, there's no grain that you, in the ordinary sense of grain. It's almost like it's marble or something, curious wood. And this is a very highly polished thing. It's beautiful. It looks like the blade, really looks like the blade of a very thin propeller. You ever hear of a sculptor named Brancusi, who uh, worked in, uh, Brancusi died a few years ago, but he, he worked in these thin blades of metal. He, he, uh, he used a chromium. Chromium was uh, one of the mediums he used. Very beautiful stuff. And and uh, this reminds me very much of a Brancusi. It's a thin blade. And it's about, I would say, about three and a half to four feet long. About three and a half feet long, something like that. But it's very delicately tapered. It's a thin blade and it has a, a kind of a carved knob on the end. So that if you're holding it, you can get a good, you know, get a good grip on it. Looks, the knob on the end is a little bit like that on a baseball bat. You know the the knob, the flange on the back of a on the bottom of a bat, the handle end, and so when you swing this thing, oh, what a murderous thing it is! It's fantastically deadly. It's a uh, you could just feel it because it's heavy, beautifully balanced, and uh, and uh, this guy gave me this thing. You see, and I thought it's better, kind of better to get it given to you that way. See, because it can if if they decided to demonstrate it, uh, the, the ball game is over because these guys. You know, these guys would wait in. <laughs> I ask him how they used it. And he says, well, that he takes it, see, by both hands. It's a, it swings it with both hands and swings it around because it's very heavy. And it, it uh, is beautifully balanced. But when he gets the thing moving, the centrifugal force, the actual weight of this thing, carries it around. See, <laughs> goes like that. And he swings around and around and around. And they, they, they swing it like a, almost like a bolo. And when they come into battle with one of these things, there's no way to get near that guy. When that thing is swinging, I tell you that. Uh, so, if uh, you don't mind, uh, uh, please let's uh, cry once again from the heart. This uh, particular, uh, oh, that's a fantastic sound. Recorded actually in the jungles of New Guinea. Now I'm playing this for a specific reason. You know what this is? This is not a war cry, really, per se. It is the song of acquisition. Or acquisition. I mean, the desire to own everything. And he's singing about that. That they are now going to go out and raid another tribe and steal all their stuff. They're not interested in the other tribe. They want all their stuff. <laughs> and it's acquisition. Hello there, hello there. So the, uh, the, the uh, like most things, it's got a hang up. But uh, uh, that was kind of nice, wasn't it? But the acquisition, the cry there is very important. 
You can sit in the next uh, cut. They all sound the same. You've heard one Borneo native. You heard them all, actually. It takes, it takes a little technique to understand them. And uh, since I do, since I, I'm very close to the primitive myself, I understand a great deal of what he's saying. You know, the desire to acquire all of it is uh, deep. And it's part of the uh, primitive mind. Only as you reach a higher degree and level of, uh, of civilization do you begin to outgrow the acquisitive the acquisitive urge, which is a basic part of the primitive man, to acquire. In fact, they claim that the the very first wars that took place between men was to to battle over the haunch of a of a uh, of a of a wild pig or something, you know, or a, or a, something they were eating. So, so it began that way was acquisition. Now you might you may want to acquire the other guy's chick, which it still happens. I was down in the place in the village the other day. And I'll tell you, I saw a fist fight that didn't stop. Guys eating each other with bar stools, yelling and hollering with the cheap wine bottles and the whole bit. And what was it? Some little chick there, you know, and she went ankling out and left both of them swinging on the floor, just left. Took off, went down the street and picked up another guy, and they left. So <laughs> it is the way wars go. But uh, the, the reason I brought this up tonight is very special. And before we do this, speaking of acquisition, the station is getting nervous we haven't acquired any money lately or lightly so uh would you please hit the uh, tap button please we've got a special button here mark tap that's the big tab and listen to this one friends for 426 bucks tap will put you on two countries they will sell you two big fantastic countries and throw in a few little groovy islands on the side tap the intercontinental airline of portugal as a two-week royal treatment tour. Man, you are treated like a king. Of course, kings don't get such good treatment these days. I don't know. Actually, I mean, but that's what they call it anyway. You know, it's European. They like the idea of kings. A royal treatment tour, and you'll go to Lisbon, Funchal, Las Palmas, and Madrid. Hey, I had a weird, I, I had a weird experience in Las Palmas. I've been in all those places. Hey, you come and ask Shepard. And the price even includes round-trip economy airfare to all those places. He'll take you to places that the average tourist just don't go to. And uh, first of all, you'll start out with uh, Lisbon, and then you'll take off to the... Well, you know, Funchal in Las Palmas is the kind of place where, uh, you know, the jet types hang around, you know, people like uh, Jackie and all that, you know. And you can make that scene for a while. And uh, then when you get tired of that, you can take off and go to uh, old Madrid. And you know what Madrid is like. <laughs> Read, uh, read Hemingway. Uh, call your travel agent, friends. For $426, you can do this whole thing in two weeks. And by the way, you're not uh, going around with a crowd of people with tags on them either. This year, you're on your own on this trip, and they provide air transportation, economy fares all over. They provide the transportation, places to stay, and for $426, man, they go all the way. So you call TAP at 421-8500 for complete details. Yeah, $426. You could hardly get your valves ground for that. Thank you, thank you. I'm singing pretty well. You notice that? Even Jerry's amused. <laughs> you don't get to him easy. Let's see. Uh, here's one. This will amuse you. And if you've got the blemished skin out there, you're breaking out, where my Aunt Claire would put it. Uh, we'd like to suggest a zit kit. 
It's an outfit called Dermacon Laboratories, and uh, they have three two three totally new products, and uh, it's a complete kit to treat uh, acne and all kinds of skin problems. And you begin with Dermacon Skin Cleanser, and you clean as often as you can with that stuff. And then during the day, you apply Dermacon Medicated Lotion, and uh, that gets you set up for the night, see? Then at night, you use Dermacon Medicated Cream. You lay that on at night, and then when you're sleeping, see, you'll be totally transformed. And when you went to bed as a toad, you wake up as, uh, you know, fantastic. The Zip Kit does not contain any harsh peeling agents and all that kind of stuff. And it's been medicated, uh, or rather proven medically, so I guess it's okay. Buy the Zip Kit. Give it a 30-day trial and uh, see what happens. Uh, Dermacon, that's D-E-R-M-A. K-O-N, Dermacon, and the thing is called Zip Kit. The whole thing comes together in a kit. And you can get it at Genovese, Whalen, Mac, Drug Guild, and other leading pharmacies. Dermacon. Yeah. Speaking of breaking out, this is W-O-R, New York. We're in a big time here. All right, you uh, Chinese food cuckoos, have you tried the Great Shanghai? Let me tell you, if you haven't, you might have missed out on some of the most fantastic Chinese food in all of New York. Few, very few, and I, I'll tell you this absolutely straight from the shoulder, very few restaurants in New York have kitchens large enough to accommodate the number of chefs from all the different regions of China that they have in the Great Shanghai. They come from Cantonese, northeastern China, Setsuan, all over the whole area there. And you can have food from all these different areas of China in the Great Shanghai. Fantastic menu. You won't believe the menu. And I would like to suggest you try the Great Shanghai Sunday Brunch. It is really great. They serve it from 11 to 4 Sunday. All you can eat for two seventy-five. It's a buffet. And children under four feet tall are a buck and a half. That's the Great Shanghai Broadway at 103rd. And there's an IRT station right there. The Great Shanghai Broadway at 103rd Street. It is good. Hey, man, uh, speaking of uh, Portugal, uh, you know, one of the famous things about Portugal is this beautiful uh, rosé wines. They in fact, uh, if you don't know it, uh, it's time to find out about it, that they, the national wine of Portugal is rosé. You find rosé everywhere, and one of the best rosé wines made in Portugal is called Costa do Sol. Costa do Sol, C-O-S-T-A-D-O-S-O-L. It's a vintage rosé, and it's only produced in vintage years, and it's bottled and aged until the flavor is just right. And, uh, by the way, it's the only Portuguese table wine ever to win a gold medal at the international contest in Budapest. It's a good table wine. Go with any kind of food, and you don't have to be a wine expert to ask for it. Just ask for Costa do Sol. It's uh, Costa do Sol, vintage rosé, imported by the Allens of M.S. Walker, Inc., in good old Boston, Massachusetts. That's a good old Portuguese town. And uh, I'll tell you the reason that I uh, I dig that, uh, that acquisitive thing. Uh, I'm going to ask a question now. I'm going to ask both of you guys a question. I want to I want to see what kind of Americans you are, Americans. What kind of Americans you are? Just just to throw it out for you. Have you ever heard of J. C. Whitney? You have. I'll bet Jerry hasn't. <laughs> I know Jerry. Jerry's more the transcendental type. You wouldn't know about Whitney. Now he is. Uh, the, 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 actually, the transcendentalists among us probably wouldn't know who Whitney is. Now, what is a transcendentalist? Well, a transcendentalist is a person who rises above the common muck and mire of the day-by-day uh, -day ordinary slob civilization. That's right. That, well, that's, that's right, Jerry. Uh, 
He does. He 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 he, he transcends it, and uh, he tends to he tends to be a naval examiner. And he examines his naval. Now that uh, that does not mean he's interested in the boats. I mean he tends to. Uh, yeah, he tends to, uh, he, he's drawn to yogi concepts and various things like that. I'm not talking about Barra. He's, uh, <laughs> well, you know, it's one of those nights. I just, <laughs> oh, stop it. But uh, it is true uh, that, uh, you know, somebody brought up a very interesting point the other day. May I, may I speak of, of Yogi Barra? Uh, who's, a, who's a really interesting man. I, I've uh, talked to Yogi on a couple of occasions when he was around the Yankees, and and uh, he really is an interesting guy. But somebody made a great point recently in one of the papers. I don't know who it was. I'd give him credit if I did, but I'm sorry. I don't know who it was who said it, but uh, it was a piece that was being written about Berra, and he said that, that Yogi Berra, in today's, by today's journalistic standards, could not exist. There would not be a Yogi Berra if Yogi were to come up today as a rookie, that uh, and, and there's a there's a lot of uh, well there's a lot of truth. Why? Well, I'll tell you. There's a lot of truth to that. That almost all characters, and I say that in capital letters, are really created by the press. In other words, the press, uh, for some reason or other, some often it's just one guy takes a takes a liking to a guy or t- is interested in some little aspect of the guy. And he writes a lot of stuff about it. And ultimately, he becomes a character. Now, whether he actually is like that or not, you know, the way his character is portrayed is beside the point. He achieves a mythical character in the press that may or may not have anything to do with the actual man. Uh, And the, the writer went on to say, and this was a newspaper writer who knows a lot about the world of newspaper writing today, he said that newspaper writers don't do that like they used to. He says there's a different kind of newspaper writer today who is primarily interested in the contractual disputes of, uh, of ball players. <laughs> in other words, money has taken over where sex has failed, many a writer. So uh, he, uh, they write primarily about, uh, like the, you take Vita Blue, you know, the whole big hassle recently about Vita Blue was much more about money than whether or not Vita Blue was an interesting guy. Nobody ever talked about Blue much, except that he was a pretty good pitcher and he wanted a lot of money. That's about all. Whereas uh, during the days when Yogi came up, back in the 1940s, writers were were fascinated by the romance of baseball uh, or sport rather than the financial aspect of sport. So they they didn't care how much money Yogi was making or was was or wasn't making. The fact is Yogi had a great-looking face. And uh, so they began to began to write about him as this primitive. You see, they tried to make it that he was a primitive because he has this face that makes you think he's uh, vaguely a primitive. Whether he was or not, that's beside the point. And they, it immediately caught on with the audience that the, the people liked the idea of this this uh, uh, non sequitur coining primitive who played with the Yankees, who said you know great things like uh, uh, when they told him that you know, one of the, one of the great lines that, that's always been attributed to Yogi. Uh, was, uh, you know, m- many of these lines are, are uh, hypothetical, really. They're apocryphal, is the real word. That uh, Whether he said it or not is uh, now beside the point. <laughs> He's given credit for it and forever will be given credit. Like, hardly anybody knows whether Satchel Page ever really did say, uh, don't ever look behind, something may be following you, may be catching up. 
Of course, this uh, this is an old uh, an old slogan that goes back to the early colonial days, but it's been attributed to Satchel Page, and so forever, uh, he's given credit for saying it. Whether he did or not is again beyond the beyond the pale of uh, discussion. It's like Louis Armstrong was always given credit for saying. Uh, uh, somebody asked him what jazz, and he's man. If you have to ask, you'll never know. You know. Well, that's been uh, attributed to at least fifty different jazz musicians. The most the most popular is Louis. Uh, whether he said it or not is beside the point. So you see, the, the press creates a lot of things that don't really exist. So a lot of people believe that ball players used to be more colorful than they are today, whereas the actual fact is that writers used to be more colorful than they are today. So uh, you had guys like uh, you know Damon Runyon writing sports, and guys like Ring Lardner, who created, by the way, a mythical rookie. Uh, everybody thought that he was really writing about real rookies. He created a, you know, a mythical rookie, and uh, that became the classical rookie. And uh, <laughs> so, so the writers have a great deal to do with whether or not a person is a character or isn't a character. And, and, and no way. Uh, the most recent one, of course, was negative, was Roger Maris. Whether or not Roger Maris was a real bad guy is totally unknown to the fan. A very few fans ever got a chance to talk to Roger Maris any more than they've ever got a chance to talk to Yogi Berra or even Joe DiMaggio. And, uh, and all the great characters, you see, that have been created by, by uh, the press. And Roger Maris became known as an evil bad guy. Well, not evil, but just a, you know, a sullen, uh, you know, incommunicative guy who was truculent and all that. And now, this probably stemmed from one writer. No doubt uh, he had a bad day or something one day. Early in his career with the Yankees, he probably had a bad day, and and uh, he came run, running into the clubhouse or something. Somebody goes, hey, Rod, you want to run? He says, don't bother me, will you? Five minutes later, the typewriter's going, and from that time on, Roger Maris. <laughs> and it, that myth persists, you see, in spite of the fact that many people who know Maris, and I know some who do, uh, proclaim constantly that he's exactly the opposite of that. He's a quiet, uh, somewhat modest guy, and uh, often excessively polite. So, uh, but the myth persists. You see, it just goes on and on. Now, whether or not it's true or not, now the fan believes it, and that's all that counts. Now, this also pertains to our, our world of politics too. Remember this: uh, that 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 uh, that the political uh, people you can you can create uh, an entirely different feeling about a man merely by a a few careful, very carefully chosen words that really don't have much to do with anything at all in the man's character. Uh, for example, if uh, if a politician is uh, is uh, if you don't like him, you see, and uh, and uh, you, you you can use you can use little words that that are not libelous, but they sure change the whole the whole tenor of it. For example, uh, if you're describing him physically. And you were to say, uh, uh, sallow George Gumpox today uh, nervously addressed the ladies of the B'nai B'rith. He's in trouble. <laughs> now, if you said uh, lean, gaunt, uh, 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 whip thin Charlie Applerod today confidently addressed the ladies of the B'nai B'rith, that's a whole different thing. But see, you can't sue anybody for calling you nervous or, or uh, confident. So, uh, <laughs> so this is the way this is the way myths are, are created, and and uh, and you can all, I can always tell whenever I'm reading a writer by whether that writer 
personally likes the person that he's uh, writing about and uh, is a little shaky about the politics. He doesn't even mention the politics, but he's, uh, he, if he personally likes that person, he will use carefully selected words uh, that, that, uh, that, that generate the... Because there's certain words, for example, that, that have magical meanings. When I say... Well, that's why I brought in the magic thing. And then magical meanings. By magic, I mean it has nothing to do with logic. So it's assumed that if a person is thin, he's somehow more sensitive than one who isn't. This is a common belief in our world today, primarily because almost all heroes in movies are thin. Uh, high cheekbones. Uh, the high cheekbone Hamlet syndrome is a well-known syndrome. That, uh, <laughs> so that, so that uh, the sensitivity is often uh, equated with being thin uh, physically. And so uh, if you wish to really kill a guy, you will say a slightly overweight Charlie Abercrombie Forget it. He's dead. <laughs> D-E-D. <laughs> That's known as the Pete Hamill chop. Uh, and uh, it has very little to do with what the guy has said. Or, you know, whether... It, but it's just that, that little subtle undercutting constantly. So this, uh, this, this is a, a very interesting problem that they constantly goes on. You know, speaking of, uh, of uh, testing the American... Again, the transcendentalists, they rise, rise totally above this. And... <laughs> and uh, wouldn't know, and I'm sure that most of the transcendentalists listening to Yogi Berra, who they, uh, the only Yogi they know is always playing Carnegie Hall and the rise with a sitar player, and uh, well, that's right. <laughs> but uh, so you can't really tell, and I, I'm, well, I, I guess all I'm saying here tonight is you can't really tell what you think about a public figure. In other words, you don't know whether your your feeling about a person. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm totally divorcing of the feeling one gets about a person, an individual. Uh, the feeling, in other words, the gut feeling you have about, have about somebody, you can't really tell whether it has much to do with his politics, with the actual statements he's made, with the record he has, or with a lot of things which are totally beyond your control. Because almost all public people are brought to you by various media. There's no way for you to know what, say, Hubert Humphrey is like in real person. No way. Uh, there's no way for you to know what uh, McGovern is like. There's no way for you to know what any of these people are like, except they're translated, they're filtered through a vast uh, a cheesecloth screen of interpreters. It's like, uh, it's like you had to constantly look at the world through some kind of a periscope that had various filters on it, and the filters were operated by somebody else. That would give you different colors and different different views, and you had no control over it. it you you just sit there and look into the periscope. You could have a very distorted view of the world, depending on the shots that are chosen. Very important. So if your periscope only pointed constantly at the city dump, and that's the only view of the world you ever had, you'd eventually have a curious view of what the world is. Now many people say that's a realistic view of the world. Well, no, it isn't. Because there's not only dumps, but there's also beautiful beaches, and they're all part of the world, whether you like to accept it or not. Now, uh, on the other hand, of course, this is a very important discussion in the in the day of a uh, in the day of a uh, you know major political campaign, and uh, and it's you can do more damage with a guy uh, or to a guy's reputation, not by now. For example, uh, 
when when uh, the, the the very judicious selection of quotes, for example, this is an old trick. Uh, if you are for somebody, you will always use quotes that tend to make that person look better. If you're not him, you will tend to use quotes that uh, do the opposite, obviously. And there's no man on earth who cannot be reduced to a midget. And I'm not putting midgets down, but I, it, there's no man on earth who, who can't be reduced to a minuscule uh, person by the judicious use of quotes. Nobody. No way. If you wanted to make the late Mahatma Gandhi look like a charlatan and a fraud, uh, just take uh, things he might have said in casual conversation to people, and if you had a record of it, ultimately you could make him sound like a used car salesman from uh, Rabbit Hash, Kentucky, trying to sell a 53 Ford Galaxy. That's right. That's a fact. Now, yet, uh, the, the, this is often used, and people don't often point it out. It's, uh, it's, it's going on constantly. Now, uh, it depends on how well you're liked, and that's why... Many major candidates and uh, people uh, in in uh, that when you get up to that position where you have uh, national reputations that have to be protected and managed, that's probably why many of them tend to become almost recluses because they realize that almost anything they do will be used by uh, you know by people who don't dig them to make them look like a fool or a fraud, no matter what he says. So if he says uh, that's a that's a very nice uh, nasturtium bed. Uh, it would come out that he 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 was unbelievably anti-Iris. That his his nasturtium bed remark shows a clear bias that the uh, prejudice. <laughs> oh yes, this is. A, I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm of course I'm exaggerating here, but this is uh, in effect what really happens. And uh, it's just, uh, the candidate naturally refused uh, totally to mention the pansy contingent. And the nasturtium, the the nasturtium contingent was jubilant with joy. For years he's been, and so you you uh, you just have to be you know careful about what you do. So on the other hand, uh, I've had a little ex- little experience with that myself. I've been uh, there've been pieces done about me that uh, sometimes I can't even recognize myself. It just simply can't uh, because of quotations taken out of context. Uh, for example, you'll say to yourself, some guy will ask you a question. This is exactly what exactly, This actually happened to me. Uh, uh, one day, a, a reporter asked me a question about a thing, and I said, he asked me about uh, uh, some important issue. Like, uh, well, I don't recall what the issue was. Let's assume that it's the Vietnamese War. He said something, uh, so-and-so Vietnamese War. And I said, well... Uh, I don't know. How should I know? But I have my thoughts, uh, and uh, they are so-and-so. Well, you know what was quoted? It says, Shepard, when asked about the Vietnamese War, simply says, how should I know? <laughs> well, I said it. I couldn't argue that, but he simply cut off half the sentence. That's all. He just lopped it off to make it sound like, uh, you know, Shepard doesn't have any ideas about these things. And, uh, you know, he's totally irrelevant, and uh, he doesn't know what's going on, and you know, so it's 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 the way it's the way uh, you you manage. Now the 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 public listening or hear, reading a thing like that, they would not know what you said. And if you come back and protest it later, so who cares? You know, by that time uh, they say, oh well, hey, look at it, he's protesting now. You know, <laughs> oh well, oh what there's smoke, there's fire. You know, like Archie Bunker always says. So uh, you can't you can't uh, 
there's no there's really no way to 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 argue with this because everything is legal you see it's it's a matter of morality now i i say this that we cannot uh, and i'm uh, you know i'm part of the media so i can't i'm not sitting here on the outside like uh, somebody attacking media I'm not i'm saying that when the morality of a country undergoes a, any country i don't care what country it is any place a group you name it when the morality undergoes a great change and the morality is such that you don't have responsibility for what you do ultimately uh, that what you're really doing is hoping to create a good story that's the responsibility you have to create a good story that is a response a lot of guys think that that is their primary responsibility uh, that ultimately you can't blame the press for doing it because it's it's in every other walk of the society this is going on uh, that that little slipping of, of uh, morality uh, where, where you'll find a car manufacturer will be deliberately putting in a a cheap uh, um, ingredient in their car a cheap part in their car merely because they want more profits they know it won't work better it won't work as well it could be even dangerous but the responsibility is to produce a cheap car, so they they can rationalize it that way. This is a so you you, you take a guy that that is turning out pornies, uh, all right. He very few want, people want to admit this. You see, you know, that he's turning out a porny, so he's turning out a sexually liberated experience, and uh, and he's proud of his X rating. So when you when you ultimately have that problem everywhere, you can't blame uh, the press for. For cleverly manipulating uh, quotes so that uh, they, their story is good. It's a good story. It's an exciting story. Did you hear what so and so said today? Oh, wow! And they're running around. And you see this. You see it even on taped interviews. That's very interesting too. I heard. I heard on one of the local news stations the other day. Very interesting progression of a story. Yes, if you listen carefully, you will find the story will change almost from hour to hour on this news station. All news station. It started out in the morning when I happened to pick it up with a quote from a local politician. Uh, and it was a long one. It was a fairly long quote. The, the quote was, uh, uh, he started out by saying something like, uh, to the question, Mr. X replied, well, that's absurd. I believe that the, uh, uh, that the argument has some basis on one side. It has basis on, on the other. Uh, that both sides have uh, right in their... In their uh, in their uh, arguments. However, I feel that uh, in my case, I believe so-and-so. See, that was the total quote. Well, then, it began to slowly be snipped out during the day. Yes. Until ultimately, by 6 o'clock, it says, when asked the question, Mr. So-and-so said, that is absurd. And in Washington today, the reports were... (laughs) Well, now... You know, I heard this. I actually heard it on the air, and I thought to myself, well, what was the point? Well, of course, they'll argue we made a better story. That's what they did, made a, made a better story. Then, Or else the argument was, well, we didn't have time for that whole long thing. <laughs> so there's all kinds of arguments, but the, the real argument is that, that we wanted to make this guy sound like a knave and a fool. That will never actually be brought out. And yet the editing, I know, was done for that reason. And I'm not defending anybody. Of course, you know what's going to happen now. I'm going to immediately get letters from both sides of the political spectrum accusing me of being for the other side. <laughs> and I'm saying to you that it happens on both sides. And uh, the, the problem of, of judicious selection of, of words and choices ultimately creates, and this is beyond the realm of any politician. You can't control it, really, ultimately. And he shouldn't be. You know, There it is. It's part of our 
free uh, system and so forth. You can do, you know, damn well what you want with a guy's quotes uh, if, you, if you stay within the letter of what he actually said. So you can wind up by making a whole different creature out of this man simply by the quotes that he, he's, uh, he's attributed to. And, and the physical descriptions are very important. Uh, for example, I, I know, I was talking to a guy the other day and, uh, who works in the makeup department of one of the major networks. Interesting character. It is his job to make up uh, various people that appear on, on uh, the very important public affairs shows on Sunday. You know, and now, you know, the, and now the XYZ network meets the word. Yes, as a public affairs, you know, we have invited this controversial person, and he's sitting on the hot seat. Well, I was talking to this uh, makeup guy. Well, it was to be a, a friend of mine, and I've known him for some time, worked with him on many shows that I've been on. And I brought up uh, a certain guy who was on a show recently that I had seen on this show, and we were laughing about it. And I said, uh, I said, come on now, tell me honestly, uh, do you do you work as hard on a on a guy <laughs> that 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 you don't like as as a uh, one you do? And he said, well, let's put it this way. He said, uh, he said, I'm only human, <laughs> which means that 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 you could you can make a whole different feeling. I mean, if you're watching a guy on television and he has this, he has these hollow, uh, uh, haggard-looking eyes, and then he's got the you know this blue jowls and all that. Just, oh man, look at it! Oh wow, you know, because it's always associated in your mind with the bad guy. It goes all the way back to to the early westerns. The bad guy always had blue jowls and uh, and the evil eyes. So you can do this in, in subtle ways, and it's not the, it's not you know who can say it's illegal, you know. It isn't. <laughs> it's, it's the, and now, lighting, of course, is very important. Camera angles are really important. In fact, I know, I know one, uh, one photo editor in town who has tacit orders from his, the front office, and I won't tell you what outfit he works for. Uh, the, the, the paper that he works for has a particular political bias. So, and it's a very strong one. So, Whenever anybody is appearing who represents the other side, they always shoot him so that these people show a heavy collection of jowls. They feel that jowls turn people off. <laughs> so, so they shoot him from certain angles. And, and believe me, anybody can be made to look jowly if you shoot him from the right angle and you shoot him when his head is in the right position and he's moving or something. So they, they, they'll shoot 500 pictures of this guy as he's making a speech. They'll always pick the one where he looks like a, a rhinoceros. You know, and, uh, and and on the other hand, they have orders, of course, to always take pictures where their candidate has this sensitive look, and he's smiling, and he always looks very idealistic and beautiful. So, so this uh, this is done in many different ways. Now, the the the, the problem, of course, is one that uh, that ultimately resolves itself down to what does the individual guy, the reader, the the viewer, the listener, and so on, what does he what is his impression of this person? You know, what is his total impression? So I'm sure that, that the total impression that most people have of Casey Stengel, uh, which is uh, largely a newspaper creation, by the way, uh, Casey Stengel is, he is colorful, no question about it, but he also happens to be a highly intelligent man. Uh, he's also uh, extremely shrewd. Uh, he's on the board of directors uh, of at least three banks, He's no, he's no buffoon that sits around, hey, slut in the toilet, you know. And, and the, the Casey Stengel image is, of course, an image that, again, was part of that, 
that uh, earlier era when all uh, managers were either colorful or they were considered uh, uh, courageous and so forth. And so Casey was, was an early creation of the press, and uh, he remains so today. Uh, that's also true of Yogi, you know, certainly in, in spades. Uh, to meet other other people out of out of uh, you know the the realities when you meet them, you're always a little disappointed because they don't really they're not really the way the press has presented them. Now from from time to time, a character will undergo a metamorphosis. He he sometimes will lose face. He will lose uh, he will lose uh, the the original bloom is off the rose, and suddenly he will turn into something else. Uh, you'll see you saw this with. Uh, with just a few months back, I mean, oh, I mean, uh, they were treating Lindsay like Lindsay could walk on water, and uh, and now suddenly uh, uh, you find a whole different change. Well, how this came about, a lot of subtle things. First of all, I don't think most people like to be associated with a loser, but uh, <laughs> that's part of it. But uh, oh, other than other than that, there's all kinds of subtle ramifications of this thing, uh, and uh, I didn't. Uh, I didn't mean to make this into a into a tirade tonight. Or did, did you did this bore you at all? But it's a problem, and I, and it's rarely talked about. You know, it, it uh, rarely is discussed. But we usually discuss it from the other side. In other words, when 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 the problem of image making is discussed, usually in public, it is almost always from the other side. In other words, we always discuss a guy who has hired a public relations agency to create an image for him. This is always discussed. We always talk about image creators, Madison Avenue. But we don't, we don't discuss the other side of the, of the image distorters. That's another group. That's rarely been pointed out that, that, uh, that, that many organizations are really dedicated because of their particular bias, their attitudes, not to creating an image, but to distorting an image, which is a whole different process. And, uh, and it's rarely discussed. <laughs> I mean, because then, then you get into some really, really uh, shaky waters. And also it, it becomes very personal at that point. You know, there's no big agency that you can go to, no outfit you can hire that is called the Image Distorters. And, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, not, there's no way for us to ever really know what kind of, uh, what kind of man, the, the actual man, what kind of man he is, how he really is. Uh, anybody in personal life. Like, I've known some people who, to the public, and, and I often hesitate to say it. I mean, I, in fact, I, I, I never say it at all. I've known some people that have a totally benevolent, beautiful, peace-loving, lovely, fantastic images to the public and to the press, too, but who, in reality, were some of the most cruel, uh, avaricious, uh, totally scheming uh, people I've known. In other words, the, the image... Can, can often be quite the reverse of the one that you know. And, and it often works the other way, too, that, that a guy who has an evil image to the public often is quite the opposite. So you, you don't know where it starts, you know, the, the, with the chicken and the egg. And in the day of the, of the total media, it's uh, the no way, no conceivable way. And uh, people, of course, form their own ideas, too, uh, which can be quite dangerous too. In other words, a guy decides so-and-so is, is a certain way. For example, I saw a, 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 a very fine actor get into trouble with a lot of people in there because somebody had decided in his own mind that this guy was just a great, beautiful person would love to talk to any fan that showed up, go out for coffee and talk for hours. 
and he was thrown out of the dressing room. The guy shows up and it's come on, you know. They they threw him out. From that time on, he he uh, he, he was in trouble. So uh, problems, uh, you know, no one knows what the what the what the private man is versus the public man. And in fact, uh, I suspect that you yourself have one face that you present to the public and another face that you have around the house. <laughs> you know, it's a human thing. Pirandello wrote about it. This is WOR New York. You stay tuned for Lester Smith and the news. This is the news in detail on the hour from the WOR newsroom. United States naval power increases off Indochina. From the Atlantic fleet, the aircraft carrier Saratoga has now joined other Navy vessels in the South China Sea. The Saratoga has already sent planes into combat around the besieged South Vietnamese provincial capital of Anlok. There are now six aircraft carriers in the South China Sea, and the seventh is on the way. Meanwhile, South Vietnamese field reports said Saigon government troops made helicopter assaults today into two fire bases within 15 miles of the old imperial capital city of Hue. The assaults are an attempt to extend the city's defenses. Close to Saigon, South Vietnamese soldiers reported killing 97 North Vietnamese troops in a battle 40 miles southeast of the capital. Departing Bangkok, after a brief visit there and to Saigon, Vice President Agnew said that he was convinced that the South Vietnamese forces are more than holding their own against the North Vietnamese offensive. Get out of Cairo and come home from Washington. That's the reported message from Egypt, as the semi-official government newspaper Al-Aram said today that Egypt has asked the United States to cut in half its diplomatic mission to Cairo. And at the same time, Egypt is said to have ordered its mission in Washington to do likewise. The reason for the orders, according to Al-Aram, Egypt is protesting the United States' policy of consolidating continued Israeli aggression through Israel's occupation of Arab territory. The predictions of doctors have sometimes turned out to be wrong, but as of now, one neurosurgeon attending wounded Alabama Governor George Wallace says there is a less than 